Hey guys, it is the 16th Wiki Game Guides Comcast. I am Simon Wu, as always. And once again, joining him, I'm Alex Miller. Yes, it's good to be back, and let's get started with our community callback segment, because we've got plenty of user feedback to talk about. So, starting us off from the last podcast, it's Darth Skeletor, fast becoming one of our regular contributors. And he writes... I don't think these art styles are going anywhere with the advent of the new console generation. They do in fact look better on the PC, as you mentioned, so it would only be to their advantage to continue this for as long as possible. When a major franchise like COD starts to do some stuff like this, you know it'll be over the peak and run away to find some other way to carve out space because you are about to get spammed into worthlessness. So. Uh, this was in response to our topic about uh, art styles in video games, like in Borderlands or Dishonored, and uh, where they kind of originated from and where they might go. Um, I believe he's being a little facetious there about something like COD starting to do that. We all know COD is just uh, ultra-realism all the time. Um, but uh, really, that's interesting that he believes that they would... Uh, continue this for as long as possible. It makes sense, but I feel like the consoles coming up with the next uh, graphics update would make it look about the same. Um, I'm not sure where they want to go with that. Yeah, the only thing that I can really think of is at the end he talks about carving out space, and that makes me think of maybe a, a smaller developer or uh, an indie title for one of these new consoles that doesn't necessarily have the budget or the resources to go all-out ultra-realism, and so instead of making a game that sort of looks realistic, but maybe not, this maybe they go in the direction of sort of quirky art style that makes them stand out. And uh, next we have Humphreys, who says, great podcast. I found you guys on iTunes the other week and was waiting for a new podcast to come out. It's very good, and keep up the work. Uh, yeah, so... Thanks for that. We love when uh, people find us on iTunes. Actually, well, we love it when anybody finds us anywhere. But it's, uh, it's great to see people coming in from multiple areas. Right. So, Soul Affliction, uh, our other loyal listener for some time now, he says, I think cell shading, etc., works best for comic book adaptations. That being said, it still catches my eye when I see a game that uses a similar art style. I would have never played 13. I assume that's Final Fantasy XIII, if it wasn't for the style. And I think most people would have ignored Borderlands if it wasn't for the art style. I don't think that the graphics gap between the PC and consoles has much to do with those styles, though, since realistic games still look decent on consoles, although I have to admit that I'm easily pleased with game graphics. After all, my PC is pretty old. Gimmicks like the Wiimote or the Kinect don't really do it for me, while shouting into the Kinect instead of pressing a button to use a Dragon Shout in Skyrim might seem nice in the beginning, the delay would seem to make it less practical. And who wants to be seem like an idiot that's talking to his TV? For playing with the family gimmicks are fine. After all, there's fun to be had with the Wii, provided you have enough players. And, yeah, it's like, it's like the Siri effect, right? You're just walking down the street, and you're talking to your phone. It, it's, it's, it's even more um, bizarre, I feel, than the Bluetooth headset thing, right? Bluetooth headset guys are just jackasses, but you've got this guy having a conversation with his phone, or instead, you walk in 
on a Friday night. You see this guy um, with his controller playing Skyrim, and he's just he's just shouting into his TV. That's uh, it's a bit uncanny. Sounds like a pretty cool dude right there. So next up, we have Disgruntled Avians, who says, In regards to the gimmicks, I think that they really muddied the waters with the whole connect voice control thing. It's a small but convenient little gateway into more robust functionality in the next console. Also, don't forget that in terms of things other than games, it's good for all the new services and things that the Xbox can now do. And as for that last point, I completely agree when it comes to using the Kinect as a remote controller for my Netflix or whatever other media consumption on the Xbox or flipping through menus. That could be nice if I chucked my controller somewhere and don't feel like getting off the couch, whatever, just to be able to you know, wiggle my arms a little bit and get over to uh, the newest episode of whatever I feel like watching. Right, so... Now we're moving on to uh, the comments for our weekend short takes uh, for the weekending uh, October 19th. And Darth Skeletor here again, of course. My god, there's creative mode now. I know that's pretty much exactly what you guys just said, but one more person needs to. Also, I'm glad that Mass Effect is moving away from the main protagonist. Although calling him Shepard gave the creators leverage over allowing people to call you some defined name which helps with immersion instead of that guy or the commander or the dude who saved the galaxy's collective ass five times, I think that the total anonymity and anybodyness of Fallout has appeal, especially if that's what they're going for now. Uh, and that's true. Like, um, But the thing is, Mass Effect has always been uh, a totally voiced game, and in that respect, or in that sense, it's been good that they've always uh, basically had a foothold in and have always been able to call you, you know, Shepard, right? Fallout and those games, even Kodor, the games where you could choose your own name, those are entirely text-based. You choose a text response and then they feed you some answer. So that's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, though to, though to be fair, Simon, the article did not say that it would not be fully voiced. It just means that it's not going to be Shepard and, by extension, Mark Muir voicing your character. It'll just be some other voice actor. So next up we have uh, Disgruntled Avians again, who writes, Just wait until I finish recreating the Titanic in Minecraft. Anyways, I've tried IE Xbox, and it necessitates a chat pad. And just like all smartphones and tablets these days, it's hampered until more people abandon Flash and move towards HTML5. Wikigame Guides looks pretty good, though, as does your site. Well, thank you for uh, checking out both of those. Glad to have people come by the site, which is... Uh, Simon, you want to give them that URL? Yeah, that's right. Um, basically, uh, gameinsight.org or wikigameguides.com will have the m- complete contact information uh, at the end of the segment. So... From our uh, weekend short takes, ending the week of October 26th, Live to Rock 13 says, I actually got done watching a video where Nintendo says it is expecting that the Wii U sales will be lower than what was initially expected. And in order to make up for the losses, they will be focusing on the 3DS. Personally, I think the console will fail because there's nothing I can see that will make everyone go out and buy one like the original Wii did. 
And yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much the fundamental problem of the Wii U. Nothing. It's the shock and all value can only work once, and it they expended it with the Wii. Yeah, the, the problem is nothing really stands out about this. It, I mean, it has the iPad-like controller, but other than that, it's sort of a watered-down version of what the next generation is going to be. And actually, Simon, I think you sent me an article just after we did this uh, short takes where you were talking about Nintendo was backing down on some of their claims that uh, they're selling however many millions of units. Don't think that's going to be the case. But uh, next up, Soul Fluxion writes, an Assassin's Creed movie could be pretty awesome, as long as it doesn't revolve around Desmond, Altair, Ezio, Connor, and instead tells its own story. Since apparently Assassins and Templars have been around way longer than Assassins, Hashashini, and Templars, the real kind, there would be quite a lot of eras in which the movie could take place without interfering in the game's storyline. We'll see how they decide to handle the whole thing, and maybe there will finally be a decent movie based on a video game. I don't know. I'm of uh, two minds on this, because part of me thinks that telling a completely separate story could be pretty cool. But at the same time, if you completely divorce it from the storyline of Assassin's Creed, the video games, then you run the risk of cutting out some of the fans who don't know what's going on or somehow it's just they feel it's not related. And I don't know, I feel like Altair, there's plenty of room before uh, the little mess up that begins the original Assassin's Creed game. And I mean, I don't know, I feel like there's all kinds of things you could do inside the actual story of the games. Um, I actually think there's plenty that is uh, they can see outside the games. I'm looking at uh, two of the Assassin's Creed short films. They're both animated short films. That's Assassin's Creed Ascendance and Assassin's Creed Embers. And uh, so they're both um, about 15 minutes in length or so. And although they focus on established characters like Embers focuses on Ezio like late in life when he's like 80 and it actually ends with him dying finally um it all it factors in like assassins from other parts of the world so in this case something that we have never seen before there's an assassin from china and she's being hunted by the ming emperor who is a templar and so through that that is like a a small gateway to a completely different world that we have yet to see but is I think a, just a great mine of untapped potential. Like the, the movie basically is Ezio training her how to be an assassin. And so in that sense, I think there are plenty of places outside the established storyline that they could go to that uh, really are compelling. Fair enough there. Like I said, I'm of two minds, so I'd honestly be happy to see it go either way. And now we have Millennium Master 18, and he responds to Soul Affliction. Well, it can revolve around Altair. There's quite a few feats we've only heard of him doing and never got to see them in detail. Ezio's story is pretty much wrapped up now, so I agree there's no point for the movie to revolve around him or Connor. No need for the new kid to get the lead role, that's just unfair. As for Desmond, you can do either with or without him. The games might focus on him, but the movie doesn't have to. Bringing up a completely new assassin will most likely disassociate the video game from the movie a bit too much. It surely is a feasibly successful concept, but it gives me cold feet since we've uh, seen quite a bunch of flops using this 
make a new protagonist formula, Resident Evil comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what I was saying before, where I think there's still plenty of room, at least in Altair's life, I agree that Ezio has pretty much been told from start to finish, but he reiterates my fear that if we make a complete cut between the game and the movie, make two completely separate things, it might disassociate it just a little too much. I don't know. Like I said, I'm of two minds. I guess, and um, Ember's worked, I guess, because uh, it was Ezio, and then they introduced the other character, so perhaps uh, another thing similar to that, right? We have an established character, maybe Altair, then training uh, an assassin from another part of the world so that we open up another avenue. We, we shouldn't just keep the established canon going, but keep it condensed and basically locked down as it is we need to start expanding because although i agree that we haven't seen everything altair uh, has to offer uh we're seeing pretty close to it having seen assassin's creed one and then now revelations start revealing all the other aspects of his life until death right it's really just that youth part that we've yet to see well, yeah though to be fair that youth part got him to be the top assassin in all of the Holy Lands got him to the high rank that we saw him fall from at the beginning of the game. So like I said, there's, there's material there, but I also agree with you, Simon, that it could be interesting to see him sort of you know, toss a, toss a softball to a new kid to hit it out of the park and make a really great film. So next, Michael Kirshner says, hopefully the AC movie won't change the animus to a time machine, as some have feared. Yeah, and no, I completely agree with that. I think it would be stupid to change up the canon or however you want to describe it because the animus obviously is such an integral part of the Assassin's Creed series is what makes the makes the you know the concept of it possible and so to you know to meddle with something that uh, vital to the storyline I think would be a poor choice by the director yeah so Soul Fluxion now responds to uh, both Michael Kirshner and Millennium Master. To Michael Kirshner, he says, I always thought the Animus was stupid. They should just focus on the assassin and ignore the present day. And to Millennium Master, uh, that's true, but his looks and his voice won't match with the actor, and that's something I don't like. That's why I think a Mass Effect movie shouldn't focus on Shepard. I have to admit, I'm thinking of, of the whole matter as a fan and not as an economist who thinks about what would make the most money. As long as I'm not disappointed, I don't care how the movie fares. And the Resident Evil movies are crappy, but apparently they're quite successful. And uh, yeah, that's correct. The Resident Evil movies are crappy, but uh, for some reason, successful. Some very obscure and unknown reason. People go to see them. I mean, that's the, uh, the driving force. I don't know why they do, but they do. So hopefully when we get some actually quality AAA title movies, uh, people will have that same spirit and go out and support. So Next, uh, Disgruntled Avians says, Not the PS3 again. Seriously, if the PS4 gets hacked also, Sony will have almost no credibility then. Then I think they're well and truly screwed. The Wii U gets hacked, that'll stop their hardcore push dead in the water. Now this is in response to the leaking of the seven was it the, the master decryption key? 
That's right, the master encryption key which, uh, for the PS3, which basically can bypass all security measures, and Sony really can't fix that because it is the master encryption key, right? It is the end-all and be-all. Everything must come through it. Uh, all data comes through it and by it. So to have that, it's like the master key to unlock everything. And they can't patch it like they did with the credit card leak. So uh, fun times at Sony Gaming Division. So basically, Sam, what you're saying is unless they find some way to do a, a triple back flute. Pause. A triple backflip through, you know, a burning ring of fire or some shit, they're not going to be able to fix the console. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Just hold, They just better pray that it doesn't spread any further than it already has, which knowing the internet, uh, yeah, you get the idea. That shit's going to be all over the place. Okay, so Darth Skeletor now says, I think Nintendo is going to be hard-pressed to get those 5.5 million units sold that they anticipate. Also, I love how they say they are going to rely on a device that has health warnings for kids attached to it. That sounds like a stable business strategy. Yeah, especially when your primary market is probably under the age of 18. That's probably not a solid business plan. Right, and those 5.5 million units sold, I think that was almost a response above to uh, live to Rock 13. And yeah, I also, we considered putting this in the short takes, but I think my uh, I canceled it because my only response to it would have been, duh, it's that uh, Nintendo president Satoru Iwata uh, confirmed that the Wii U is being sold at a loss. Um, and that they should expect quarter their next quarterly earnings to probably disappoint some. Yeah, I mean, Simon, as we have always said on here, consoles will always be lost leaders. You have to accept that, and you have to move on. And so, given the fact that they're already selling the Wii U at a loss, I'm surprised that it is as expensive as it is, considering the, the, the cheap price factor was one of the things that gave the original Wii its advantage over other platforms. You know, like like we said before, the Wii U just doesn't have anything to work with, and this is another reason why. So for our weekend short takes ending the 2nd of November, Solifluxion responds to our talk about Steam for Linux. I have to disagree with Simon's statement, okay, that only pros can use Linux. Sure, there are tons of things that the ordinary user won't ever be able to do, but as far as quote-unquote normal usage goes, people who are smart enough to use Windows should be perfectly capable of using one of the more user-friendly distributions. For example, Ubuntu. And uh, yeah, no, no, I don't think that only pros can use Linux. I think my wording, what I said is uh, only like the pros can run Linux, either underlined or italicized, which... Uh, I think Soul Fluxion, you, you pretty much say there. Now, as far as he says, uh, I think it's great that Valve is finally taking this step. After all, they are also re uh, released Steam for Mac, and I dare say that there are more people interested in gaming on a computer that use Linux than Mac users that are interested in gaming, at least here in Europe. One of the first things I always did when I installed Linux was installing Steam via Wine so that I could play my games. And then, at Disney's Star Wars, 
if now the villains will sing cool songs, as is the norm with Disney movies, I'm cool with the whole thing. After all, it's not like George Lucas could ruin the franchise even more. Yeah, well, uh, in response to uh, Soulfunction's first point, I think it's fantastic that uh, Valve is finally um, releasing a version of Steam that is going to run on Linux and work well on Linux. The only problem that I had, and I'm not sure if I made this as clear as I probably should have in my comments on the short take, is that statements made by Gaben and others at Valve seem to suggest that they're moving away from Windows towards Linux, and that's where I... I don't know, have a problem, a problem or fears, whatever you want to call it. That's the the root of the issue: is the moving away versus the expansion too. I think it's fantastic that Steam is going to run on Linux well. My only concern is, what does that mean for Windows? And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can leave a comment below, obviously, or you can send us an email, game-insight at outlook.com. We've got some emails that we're working through and responding to right now. We'll get those uh, for the next podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm twitter.com slash WGG underscore SWU. Alex is WGG underscore RAM. And uh, while I have your attention for another few seconds, I can say that uh, tune into my radio show, which is the Natural Double D20s, the D&D reference. You can catch it every Saturday from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is streaming live online. You can catch the online live stream at georgetownradio.com. And while we don't have archiving yet... I'm told that that will be in place by Thanksgiving, and we will have a two-podcast or two-show running archive. That will uh, finish up our community callback segment for this podcast, and so now we're going to start our first little mini-segment, Dixicles segment, where we talk about what kind of games we have been playing since the last podcast. Alex? Well... Uh, as per usual, I've been pl- been playing a fair amount of FIFA 13, my uh, my go-to game, my gaming drug, if you will. But uh, on top of that, I've also been uh, continuing to play Fallout New Vegas a little bit and a little bit of Borderlands. So, just mixing up nice little variety there. Right. Um, my gaming has been a bit more homogenous because I'm just playing with a couple of friends constantly. Nazi zombies on Black Ops, like nobody's business, just like all day long. Uh, there's a bit of FIFA 12 in there, my manager mode. I think I've got Spurs to second in the league. Uh, a little other than that, um, not much else. Uh, so that's all for that. But now it's uh, on to our first uh, full segment, and we're discussing COD creep. And no, it's not stalking the one girl you can find on Call of Duty. That's not what COD Creep is. Um, I should probably explain the origins of this. I actually had the bizarre fortune or chance to run into someone last week who actually reads and listens to our updates and podcasts. And so that was, that was kind of strange. Um, he's also a big fan of Wiki Game Guides, uh, but he's a lurker. And so I told him immediately that he should get an account on the site and get involved. 
uh, as should anyone who is in the same situation, because that's uh, really that's how uh, Alex and I started. Yeah, I mean, for the longest time, uh, Simon and I were just you know sitting in the computer lab at our high school, uh, just watching updates and uh, you know walkthroughs and such, and listening to the podcasts uh, sometimes when we were working. But uh, it's only when we really we signed up for the site and became involved that I don't know. It, it took the experience to another level for me. I thought the the interaction on the site is is pretty nice. Right, and so um, it just happened in the course of discussion, and he said that he would like us to talk about how the multiplayer mechanics of Call of Duty are now seeping into other franchises, and really he singled out namely Halo. And so talk about what that means for Halo and why that might be the case. And as we have said, since our mission statement in the very first podcast, we are here to serve. So away it goes. Yeah, I must say it is one of the more interesting ways that listeners have got in touch with us, but still valid, still works, we'll absolutely still respect it. And so first off, what defines COD creep? Um, I would define it as the introduction of certain aspects into multiplayer, such as unlock overload, a monetary purchase system for new items, and the ability to modify your character as in tangible um, changes to your character's performance or stats, health, speed, etc. And so the Halo that I knew and grew up with and bought the limited edition 364 Halos 1, 2, and 3, they didn't have those features. I personally think it's better that way, but that's me being old man gamer. Um, But we'll have more on that for later. However, this listener gave me an interesting hypothesis on why Halo is suffering from COD creep. And it goes as follows. Now, if we go back in time, we remember that Halo 3 was released in 2007. And that was the same year as the original Call of Duty Modern Warfare, the classic, the true original breakthrough that we all revere to this day and wish could continue. However, what came next for the Halo franchise? Halo Wars, the valiant but flawed attempt to bring RTS to consoles, or Halo 3 ODST, which was supposed to be a mere $40 add-on, but they kind of morphed it into a full game by throwing in a Halo 3 multiplayer disc and putting in Firefight to join the hordes of people trying for horde mode. Yes, I mean, I would say uh, Firefight was a pretty significant addition, but you're right there. Other than that, ODST was basically an extra single-player campaign tacked on to Halo 3. Yeah, and uh, it, was, it was basically a stopgap measure, if anything, between Halo 3 and Reach, because it was going to be a really, really long time um, in terms of video game release cycles uh, between 3 and Reach, and so they had to put something in there. And Halo Wars certainly wasn't going to cut it, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, and uh, going on at the same time, as we all know, Modern Warfare has no problem staying relevant and sending out things all the time. Because you know, at the time they were taking off like nobody's business. They're doing crazy sales numbers. Modern Warfare 2 just compounded on that incredible success by having at the time it was the largest ever media release. Yeah, and I think that it continues to do that. So, and Activision continues to have these marketing blitzes. You see, they're getting increasingly fancy with 
the big names that they have. They had an all celebrity commercial, right? And like everyone is like got a soldier in them for Black Ops, Black Ops Two, uh, where they have basically like celebrities fighting in a war zone. So, yeah, things like that. It's just the they're increasing um, the I don't know the shock and awe value of the ad campaigns. They take it up a notch every single time. So during this period when Call of Duty was very firmly in the in the foreground, Halo sort of fell back a little bit. It was in the background and they were tinkering with it. Bungie was getting ready for their Halo swan song in what would be the excellent game of Halo Reach, but it did take a couple years for that to get out there. So in the meantime, everyone just sort of got used to the idea of kill cams and perks and unlocked attachments, and that was just sort of standard. Because like I said, Halo multiplayer is just sort of not really present for you know those several years. We just sort of, we got stuck at Halo 3 and that while fantastic there was nothing new about it and you just sort of kept going on with the same old thing. Yeah so Halo Reach finally got around to coming out but then that was right smack dab in the middle of this Call of Duty craze and so in response you can see that it made limited moves towards that especially in the areas of loadouts right which resemble CODs class-based multiplayer. You have a certain group of, of items, weapons, equipment that you have, right? You have your fast attack or you have your support or what have you. And it also, more permanent equipment like sprint or armor lock, right? You had equipment before. It was like power drain or flare in Halo 3. But really, I've those were limited use at best, I feel. You really, they were completely ancillary, and you rarely, if ever, forget, or remember, actually, I should say, to deploy them in a, the middle of a combat situation. And so, in the interim, tons of new gamers flooded in, and because the PS3 and the 360 really got their ramp up, um, I think, from 2008 onwards, and they got their start in gaming from Call of Duty instead of Halo. So now, 343 is faced with a gaming audience that remembers Halo but has either moved on or doesn't know too well about the idea of using half uh, a battle rifle clip to drain the shields and instantly headshot, or the more standard use uh, an assault rifle clip then followed by melee to finish them off. Right? They know how to fire a quick burst around the corner or no-scope snipe or run up and knife with commando as your perk. So, presented with this problem, we see the consequences in Halo 4's multiplayer. And you see that Halo 4 will have kill, certain type of kill camps. Halo 4 has expanded the uh, loadouts, the idea of loadouts. There's now a monetary system to buy uh, armor customization or other things. And in one of the most remarkable departures from previous practice in Halo, uh, what I just mentioned, armor customizations now actually have effects, right? Yeah. Recon, Hayabusa, security, before it all just looked really, really sweet. I mean, Simon, I remember just chatting with you on Xbox Live for hours and hours as you 
grinded and did whatever you had to do to get that fucking recon armor. Oh, that was so hard. Oh, God. If anyone doesn't remember, um, because there was this audience, a while after Halo came out, like a while after, um, recon was this thing uh, that only Bungie employees had, and it was basically revered by the entire community as this awesome thing, right? And they would award special Halo players recon. But then in an effort, uh, I think, really, to boost their sagging multiplayer um, audience, they introduced the ability for everyone to get recon if they unlocked all seven of the Vidmaster achievements. I think four of them were added onto Halo 3 through DLC, uh, Mythic, and uh, the other three you had to get through ODST. And one of them was to beat the last mission on Halo 4, or, excuse me, Halo 3, sorry, um, the Warthog uh, escape scene, except that it's four players, everyone must use ghosts, and must be legendary. And so that took unbelievable amount of time, but we finally got through it. Yeah, Simon, I think you forgot the most crucial bit of that little cocktail of god damn it what the fuck how has this been five hours everyone had to have iron on yeah so if you if anyone died you could not respawn right you couldn't they couldn't just carry on without you you iron makes you reload to the last checkpoint and so just over and over right you have to exit you have to hit that exact spot everyone has to hit that exact spot if you miss it by one degree to the left or the right, you're going into the lava, you're falling with the platform, you did not make it, and here we go again. Yeah, so ever since Halo 3 with the recon, and then ODST and Reach, all these different armor plates and helmets and shoulder pads and knee pads and whatever else you wanted to buy with your credits that you got in Reach for ungodly amounts of playing, they all just looked really cool. But not anymore. That's no longer the case. Right. So, uh, really quickly, I mentioned that um, I have full recon and the sword, the katana on the back in Halo 3. Um, but I, I really quickly have to say that I think Bungie totally sold out uh, on Halo Reach. In that regard, it was uh, DL exclusive DLC that you got bundled by pre-ordering think at GameStop or maybe it was just including the package altogether so anyone can get recon so cheapened the achievement that you had from Halo 3 and just really didn't if it had carried over I would have felt much better about that but anyways uh, we can speak a bit now about more official explanations for why this is happening and uh, we spoke during RTX to Frank O'Connor Frankie and he said there hand was sort of forced that they have to keep up with the realities of the situation in the gaming industry as it is. Now, the fact that I actually even managed to talk to Frank O'Connor, um, one of the uh, one of the members of my radio show yesterday, when I revealed that fact, he uh, he said, and I quote, "The missing God. What doth he say? What doth he say? Tell me." And so. Of course, we all know Frankie uh, is revered by the Halo community. 
to, to no small degree, because he's really been the face and the voice of Halo, first for so long at Bungie, but now lead kind of at 343. As well as the creator of very funny-looking Spartan helmets. Mr. Chief. Um, so that's his explanation. And on one hand, they understand it is necessary to keep growing the base and expanding Halo's popularity to a new ge generation and new audiences. But then we think that there's a very valid concern that if they can just parrot COD blindly, then they've truly lost because the franchise that started the entire genre of first-person shooters has now given in and started copying another instead of fighting for the style of gameplay that it established and made it distinctive. And really, it's Halo. Why not make there be a slight barrier to entry? Yes, there is a learning curve. You will not kill someone in three shots like you noticed in COD, right? You will take an entire clip because people have energy shields and actually a more than minuscule amount of health beyond that, right? So it's, it's just going to be different. Now, I mentioned that radio show that I'm on, and this is not just another shameless plug for it, although it sort of is. Uh, it's on every Saturday night from 7 to 8 p.m. EST. It is on WGTB. You can listen on the webcast web stream at georgetownradio.com. Um, but since I've been doing the show, in it, one of my co-hosts talks about how he had clan members, right? He was pretty serious MLG. Um, he had clan members who had advanced access to Halo 4. Now, they say that the final multiplayer really does feel like what Halo 3 should have been, and that Reach was, in fact, the odd one out, right? So, apparently, as always, the truth rests somewhere in between. And, uh... We'll finally see. And that's going to wrap up our segment because we're going to talk about the Game Minder segment where we talk about the new games coming out uh, between the time of we release this podcast and the time we start recording our next podcast using GameMinder.com. And like we said, for some time, we will be going absolutely crazy over the next few weeks. There is the... Uh, Mass Effect Trilogy pack that we mentioned in the short takes previously. That is actually now going to be here for 360 and PS3. Remember that the PS3 version, or 360 and PC, excuse me, the PS3 version is delayed um, as it has been for Mass Effect. Uh, so that is coming out on the 6th. Yep, so uh, next Tuesday, the 13th, you got Black Ops 2 for all major consoles. And technically, I suppose, that does include the Wii U, uh, as well as the PC. So, it's going to be big. It'll be interesting to see if there are any changes in this year's iteration of Call of Duty. Yay, futureness, and, you know, whatever. Uh, as long, I guess uh, I just kill more time by playing the new Zombies mode, if there's one. So, I'll just do that for a while. Um, invest in that on Black Friday. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it, Robot Zombies could be kind of cool. I might actually get that game now. Robot Zombies. Wow. I'm just picturing a bunch of, like, Terminators as zombies. That's what I, that's what I think now. You know what? You know, whatever it takes to get people to buy their game, 
But uh, then following that, on Sunday the 18th, uh, the Wii U is finally going to have their launch crazy, and they're going to try and reach that hardcore equivalence with the other consoles. So they're going to be releasing Assassin's Creed 3 for the Wii U, and that's also going to be when it comes out for the PC. Uh, Batman Arkham City, Darksiders 2, as well as FIFA 13, and that's all for the Wii U. So we'll see how sales do there and if that can do anything to help their sort of slowing uh, push to try and reach uh, hardcore equivalents. Right, but if you some for some reason decided to buy a Wii U, uh, that's what you've got coming in store for you uh, in the coming weeks. And so, moving on now to our second segment. Yeah, so I mean, just the uh, the other day I was uh, I was thinking about Halo, you know, as one does, and I was getting ready for the release of Halo Four, and it was just getting ready for the following hours and hours of fun. But then I was thinking about why this was one of my favorite games and what was what, what were the reasons for this. And so while I'm different from a lot of gamers in that I don't well I don't usually touch multiplayer until after I've finished the campaign usually on legendary. I still have to accept that while the campaign is usually fantastic, I enjoy it a ton. I love the story and all that stuff. But it's the multiplayer that is what keeps me coming back and playing month after month, and in the case of some of the Halo games, year after year. So this really this prompted me to think, what makes a good multiplayer game good? Like, like what about it, it makes it so that it keeps me coming back, and that I have a fresh face every time? I just, what is essentially the same thing? So as there are only so many maps and so many guns, one might think that I would just get tired of the monotony of the game. You know, you spawn, run forwards, pick up gun A or B, run to point C and do whatever. But I don't. And in fact, I actually I look for more. I play all kinds of multiplayer games. You know, I dabble in Call of Duty time to time. I play the Battlefield series. You know, whatever I feel like playing at the time, Gears of War as well. Simon, so, mean, we did a uh, whatever the hardest difficulty, or I think Nightmare, or whatever we did a run in that. Yeah, insane. We did a run of that in Gears of War three, and then went on to play the multiplayer. So now with that in mind, I'm gonna try and do something that's gonna be a little bit difficult, but I'm gonna try and isolate what are some of those factors that uh, make a good multiplayer tr- game truly good. And just a, a quick note. When I say a good multiplayer game, I'm going to be focusing on the uh, first-person shooter genre of, uh, of games. So now the, the first thing to really consider when you're thinking about a multiplayer game and a multiplayer shooter, and one of the things I brought up above is the replayability of a game. You have to be able to play a game more than once without it getting boring or else you know, what's the point? Because while some might say that the very nature of a multiplayer game makes it random and therefore different each and every time, this is not always the case. Because poor map design and balancing can make a game run the same path every single time. This is a surefire path to boredom. And again, um, in any map, right, in Halo 3, or Halo actually publicized this very much so with the heat maps uh, that they collected of like where players move most of the time and where players die. And predictably, there are 
areas of really intense concentration around like uh, teleporters or around like uh, grav lift elevators and things like that. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad map. However, what does mean it's a bad map is if there are, like you say, glitches, like Afghan Javelin map glitch, uh, one of the most famous things in MW2 for quite some time until it was finally patched uh, by Activision or Infinity Ward. And um, in terms of it being random, that's not, yeah, that's not quite necessarily the case because predictably, as these heat maps suggest, people tend to move to certain areas, certain areas that uh, may confer like a height advantage. Right now I'm thinking of the Overwatch and the Cliff on Afghan, um, where snipers usually like to add. Yeah, and I mean, we keep throwing out this term, uh, well-balanced. We mentioned it a couple times in the, the previous segment. And I think just, you know, for argument's sake, we should probably just try and go ahead and define it. And So at least when I say a well-balanced map, I'm not really saying, I don't mean one that's exactly the same on both sides. It's not mirror images of each other. Because generally that can be boring. Or not, you know. You see Blood Gulch for an example of that. But what I mean is that each side of the map has an equal number of strategic advantages and disadvantages on the other. And that makes the contest fair. So on top of this, there's also got to be a lot of options for a player to take. Because, like I said before, if all a player can do is go forward, you know, get gun A or B, and then go to point C, every other player is going to do that, and then you've just got a line of people following each other, a little conga line to headshots or something, and that's not fun. But if there are options and many things a player can do, that's when things get fun. Yeah. Exactly. Um, really, symmetrical maps, as you mentioned, are very boring. I remember in Republic Commando, that uh, great game of old, which a travesty that they did not release a second game for, but I'm sure Star Wars will be on the docket uh, a few weeks from now after we've got a little time for the dust to settle, as always, and we can really put some thought into what, how it's going to affect the gaming side it more thoroughly. Um, Republic Commando had these maps, uh, I think it was like Arena A9 or Arena B17. They were perfectly symmetrical. And those were the boring ones, right? Um, those were the ones where it was exactly the same and you'd run in and you'd all meet exactly in the middle right, every single time. Yeah, if there's no spice or variety to mix things up, you might as well just have literally a blank fields with nothing there so you can just shoot at each other because the end result is going to be the same yeah exactly save you the effort of having to go over the obstacles and get to the center point right because that's exactly what's going to happen there's literally just a giant partition dividing the two so it's not like you could shoot through at each other you had to go into the middle fight and then one of you would die and then the other person would run back to try and get some ammo regenerate health and then it would be the same thing again so the maps with much more variety actually were far better in that regard. Yeah, so, I mean, on top of a well-balanced map, you know, there are more things that can add to a good multiplayer experience, like in-game features, because these can provide extra factors which make each playthrough unique. Now, we all know the Battlefield series of games is r renowned for its squad-based multiplayer. You know, you're just pretty much automatically dumped into a squad when you 
when you join in, you can choose or you can just get randomly put in one. Someone's assigned squad leader and they can talk with their squad or the whole team. And that way it, it makes it a little bit more personal. And that way you get sort of unique objectives that can change on a whim depending how good a squad leader you have. So by organizing players in this way and giving them little mini objectives that differ each time, the game can remain fresh many playthroughs later. Alternatively, like we talked about before the Call of Duty series, and this is obviously post-Modern Warfare, is famed for its perk system, which are you know these in-game bonuses that can cause a sudden, very dramatic, in the case of a nuke, ending shift in the balance of power in the game. And these games can increase the drama and increase the excitement of the game, and that makes things fresh and new and fun each and every time. Uh, yeah, so in terms of uh, that, I think what you see is that um, on Blood Gulch, for example, this well-balanced, uh, I want to go back to that for a second. Uh, it's not exactly symmetrical, right? The, you have the Banshee cliff on one side for sniping, but then you have the, uh, the hill cliff on the other side, and then you have the cave network. And so it's not perfectly symmetrical. There are little kinks in it that make it, uh, that make it, um, that throw it off a little bit, that can't make it perfectly aligned. You cannot have two banshee cliffs, two snipers trying to kill each other from that side, right? And so that's what I think helped it be such a great success, despite the fact that we said, obviously, there is a penchant for um, symmetrical maps to, uh, to fail. And so... Uh, yeah, so uh, other factors that I was thinking about when I was considering what makes these good games good, go a little bit further back, and I'm thinking as far back as some of the pioneers of the FPS genre. So Doom was obviously one of these, if not the first to really pioneer and champion this first-person shooter genre. It was one of the first to have competitive multiplayer against other humans. Um, however... It was limited to only a couple of players. So while it's fun, and certainly GoldenEye, which is possibly one of my favorite games ever, showed that it's in, this is in no way a limit on the amount of fun you can have. The more people generally equals more fun, because we saw in games like Halo that had system link up to 16 players, it really is the more the merrier. Yeah. The fact that it's um, other people you're running against, that was great because for the longest time it was the AI bots and their pathing errors were incorrect, they get stuck and everything like that. But then you suddenly have these human players. They know what they're doing. They can think. They can think probably just like you or sometimes in many cases even better than you. They know the map, they know the weapons, they know the situation. And that's what makes it fun. And on top of that, the thing that I think makes playing against humans infinitely better than playing against any AI and what will make it very challenging to ever replicate a, a human opponent with an AI is that humans don't always do the smartest things. Sometimes people will do completely idiotic things that you just don't expect. And in that way, it can actually almost be a good move. And that provides what I was talking about before, that randomness, that chance for error that you don't anticipate.
Exactly. I have the perfect example of this. I was playing FIFA 12, and like on single player, obviously, versus the AI manager mode or just kickoff exhibition match, whatever. I would consistently uh, win like 2-0, 3-0, 4-1 or so. But then, like, nothing changed. I threw in a person who had never played FIFA before. Never played. I handed her the controller. I briefly showed her the controls and everything. And, uh, but the thing was, the end, uh, the end result was we tied 0-0. Because she didn't react like a normal player would, or even an AI for that matter. Like, it was so unpredictable. I could usually read what was going to happen with a player, right? Like, they get the ball, they pass it around in the midfield, they try and get up there. But she was just passing completely erratically, and every time I'd approach her area, she didn't even know which character was hers. And so somehow there ended up being a giant clusterfuck in the 18-yard box, and then the ball would get uh, thrown out again. And it was, it was just, I, I was thrown for a loop, and the score ended up being tied 0-0. So in that regard, yes, that's a great example of how humans getting involved can completely change the nature of a game. Yeah, so I mean it's these these little things that that really combine together for this experience. So, I mean with all these things in mind and I'm sure we've only mentioned a couple of things here Simon, so I'm sure the listeners are correcting me and have been correcting me this entire segment and I'm sure they're going to uh point out all the things that they loved and that I missed in the comment section below or in uh tweets to either yourself or myself, I'm WGG underscore RAM, and you are obviously WGG underscore SWU. And uh, you can also send us emails. At game-insight at outlook.com. We need to make a, a judgment call, though, actually, with, with that in mind. Is, yeah. is uh, any one of these factors more important than any of the others? And I don't know about you, Simon, but... I'm going to go ahead and say no, but the reason for this is that for a multiplayer game or a multiplayer map or any of these things, any of the components to be really good, you need to have a blend of all of these things. And to be really fun and to have the replay factor that you desire, it's got to be a nice, a nice mix of a lot of different things. That's correct. Um can't have just any one thing or too much of any one thing, right? You can't have a completely um, kind of arbitrary and just random map, right? And by that same token, as we discussed, you cannot have a completely symmetric map. You can't have, like, too few opponents, but at the same time, you can't have 256 opponents, right? So... To be really fun and have that replayability factor that you can't just put it down, you need a balanced thing. So you need the map that has some semblance of kind of uh, some way that confers tactical advantages in some spots and areas where you can filter people through so that there can be intense combat in-game features that make it interesting, right? If you everyone has kind of this same samey weapon that shoots the same distance and then they're all just running towards each other and dying, 
uh, that's going to get pretty monotonous pretty quickly. You need some kind of way to tilt that. You need some kind of weapon that either gives you longer distance or gives you incredible power at short distances, right? Or some other thing that can tilt the battle. And so, like, kill streaks in COD, for example. Um, opponents, to a certain degree, certainly human opponents, right? Not AI bots, because AI bots will glitch and then they will be stuck forever running behind a rock. And so, that's what I have on my end. Alex, you got anything else to close this out? No, I think that's just about it. So, uh, with that in mind, thanks again, everyone, for listening. Night, everybody.